You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Your life changes. And some of you are here this morning and you need to be saved. And if you are a sinner and willing to admit it, that you need a physician, that you are bankrupt and can do nothing to save yourself, he will receive you. But if you come bringing things to God, he will not receive you. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In a message entitled, Receiving Sinners from Romans chapter 15, Pastor Brogy has been looking at the way Jesus Christ received sinners, and in so doing, how we ought to do likewise. Today, we pick up as Dr. Brogy continues to look at the parables Jesus gave, displaying how the Father seeks after us. Some would say one parable with three parts. Some would say three parables. Doesn't matter. The message is clear. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, beginning in verse 4. If you look down at verse 8, he tells the parable of the lost piece of silver. And then beginning in verse 11, he tells the parable of the lost sinners, the lost uh, son. And he does it to show God's passionate love for sinners. Now look at the familiar refrain here in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They were scandalized by the behavior of the Lord Jesus. It was bad enough that the Lord Jesus receives these people, but he's even eating with them and defiling himself. And so these people did not yet understand that the Son of Man had come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, verse 3, he told them this parable saying, and watch closely in all three stories, something or someone is lost, There's an earnestness to find it. And when it's found with passion, there's a great rejoicing that takes place. Verse 4, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Sheep, as you know, have the tendency to go astray. Peter wrote, describing us spiritually, for you were continually straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. And so the scribes and the Pharisees here had no problem seeing the tax collectors and these sinners as lost sheep. But they don't apply the image to themselves, but Christ is going to. The prophet Isaiah said, and they should have known it, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Had they just read their own scriptures, all means all. And that included the scribes and their Pharisees. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, even religious people. And so in these three parables, Christ speaks of three different kinds of lost people and how God pursues them. Even in the parable of the prodigal son, he's not talking about some wayward Christian in that parable. He's talking about someone who had never met the living God. And that's clear from the context. Remember, he is dealing with people who have an objection to the fact that he eats with sinners. And then when you come to the prodigal son, he, of course, is going to receive a new position and he's going to be given a new sense of authority. Yet he's already a Jew. He's one of God's chosen people. But as we've seen in our study of Romans, though God chose the nation, that's Romans 9, individuals within the nation still need to make personal decisions for Christ. 
And though this man was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, did not automatically mean that he was righteous with God. Again in verse 4, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one? Underscore that in your thinking. Jesus is not saying the 99 are unimportant to the shepherd. Instead, he's emphasizing the one. Remember, the one represents here the sinners, the tax collectors. And God loves sinners. It doesn't mean that the 99 are unimportant to them. They're important to him as well. The 99, as we're going to see, represent the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are unwilling to repent. But the Lord goes after the one, the the strange sheep. And when he has found it, we read, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep which was lost. Look, when a sinner gets saved, there's great joy. And these three parables underscore that. Now the parable, of course, says nothing of how the sheep themselves felt when they were saved. But other passages do. We just read of Matthew, who threw a great feast on the day he was converted and invited all his friends. He was overjoyed. You read Acts 3, you read Acts 8 of people who are saved, and there's great joy that happens on a Sunday morning. Very often, most Sundays, either in Bluffton or the first service, there's the second service, occasionally at all three, someone comes to Christ and the people here rejoice together. There's just a sense of joy that God brings to the heart of a regenerated person when someone finds the Lord. There's also joy in the one who does the finding, which is the focus here. And if you've ever been privileged to lead even one person to Christ, you're just overwhelmed with the joy of it, that God would use you to introduce someone into the kingdom. And so there's joy in the one who is found. There's joy in the one who does the finding. And he's going to underscore here in a moment, there's even joy in heaven. Look at verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there is, will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, over one tax gatherer who repents than over 99 righteous persons, i.e. Pharisees, who need no repentance. So Jesus was saying, look, God passionately searches for lost sinners. And when he finds them, he rejoices. Look at verse 8. He tells the second parable or the second part to the same parable. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When a Jewish girl got married in the first century, she began to wear a headband of 10 silver coins. And some to this day still do it there in Israel. And you would have 10 drachmas across the top. That's the word here for coin, drachma. And a drachma was an equivalent to one day's wage. And if you lost one of those coins, not only would you lose something of great value, you would lose something of great sentimental value. It would be like a, a woman losing the diamond out of the setting. And so, of course, uh, Israel, those homes in the first century were dark. You would have to light a lamp. The floors were dirt. You would have to sweep until you found that coin. But imagine her joy in finding it. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. The point is clear to Jesus' listeners. The sinners with whom he is associating are extremely valuable to God Almighty. In the same way, verse 10, I tell you, 
There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, it's easy to read these two parables today and to take it for granted. But understand, in the first century, when they heard these, they would have been shocked because the teaching they were getting day in and day out in the temple precincts and in the synagogues by the scribes and by the Pharisees had a legalistic view of God, not a God who sought sinners. And yet had they only read their own scripture right at the fall, it was not Adam who was seeking God, but God is seeking Adam when he asks, where are you, Adam? God seeks sinners. He is like a father who has pity on a son. And so King David could write, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And this was a a thought that was contrary, that God loves sinners, that God passionately seeks sinners because it was so contrary to the legalism of that day. And the angels in heaven themselves rejoice. Now, there's a third part to this parable. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal, of course, means extravagant or, or wasteful. And he lives a riotous life. But maybe, remember those titles are put there by the publishers and different Bibles read different things. They're not inspired any more than the chapter and verse divisions are. Maybe it would have been better titled the the parable of the loving father. Because the emphasis is on the graciousness and the love of the father even more so than the sinfulness of the son. And so in this lost sheep parable we see a picture of the good shepherd of the Lord Jesus, of God the Son going after sinners. In this parable of the lost coin, we see a picture of God the Holy Spirit sweeping, stirring, putting His spotlight on people that they might be found. But in this last parable, we see a picture of the Father who actually does not go after the lost sinner in this parable. In fact, it's the memory of the Father, the goodness of God. As Paul says, the goodness of God can lead us to repentance. It's the remembrance of His Father that brings Him as the Father waits. The Son procured salvation. The Spirit of God applies it. He works in your heart. He enlightens your need. But the Father waits for you to make that decision. And when you make that decision, He will justify you. Look at the parable. Verse 11 of chapter 15. And He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. We used to sing a, a, a hymn when I was a new Christian. It was called, It Pays to Serve Jesus. It pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. It pays every step of the way. Well, I can tell you it costs to serve Satan. It costs every day. It costs every step of the way. It will cost you your character. It will cost you your influence. It will cost you your reputation, your time, your home, your love your soul, and ultimately it can cost you heaven itself. So he went and he hired himself out, the Bible says here, to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Oh, they would have fallen out of their seats when Jesus gave this. 
Remember, this is a Jewish boy. And no self-respecting Jew would touch a hog with a 10-foot pole. And yet he's in there feeding the swine. This young man who was meant to be in his father's house is now a friend of swine because he's enslaved to the evil one. Verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. And I suppose the worst part of his hunger is he was hungry in more than one way. Not just physically, but spiritually. Listen, sin makes great promises, but it always leaves you bankrupt. Don't ever tell the unbeliever there's no fun in sin. There is. That's what makes it tempting. There's pleasure in sin for a season, Moses wrote. But only a season. It will come back and bite you and it will leave you bankrupt. And so life in the distant country was not what he thought it would be. It promised the freedom, but it only brought slavery. And so here is a boy, he, he thought he would find himself, but he only loses himself. And so now notice what he says to himself, verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. His resources were gone. His friends were gone at the same time. A famine had come in the land and he was forced to work for a stranger what he should have done for his own father. Worked hard. And, and so now all the painful circumstances of his decisions just come all over him. And he thinks, look, if my father can be so good to his servants, maybe, just maybe, he'll be willing to forgive his son. Now, had he only stopped there in his remorse, he would not have been saved. Had he only been broken over the consequences of his sin, that would not have brought conversion. Contrary to popular thinking, to repent does not mean to feel sorry. The Greek word metaneo, the verb, literally means to change your mind. Yes, sorrow may be involved. Paul says, for instance, there's a godly sorrow that can lead to repentance, but the sorrow is not repentance. Many a person has been sorrowful over the consequences of their sin without having repented. Repentance is important. The first word out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was repent. Peter, when they asked him, brethren, what must we do to be saved? His first word out of his mouth is repent. Though when Paul is asked the same question, what must we do to be saved? Or what must I do, the Philippian jailer? The first word out of his mouth is believe. In fact, there's a gospel whose whole purpose, John tells us, is that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing they might find life in His name. There's an evangelistic appeal to John's gospel that no other gospel states for itself. And yet the word repent never once appears in John's gospel. Understand repentance and belief are the flip side of the same coin. If you're in California and I ask you to come to South Carolina, I don't have to say, well, leave California to come to South Carolina. No, to come to South Carolina is to leave California. And if you haven't left California, you haven't come to South Carolina. 
when we invite people to Jesus Christ, there is an assumption that they are coming for a reason, for their forgiveness of sin. There's an assumption that they call sin, sin, that they're not coming just for fire insurance so that they don't have to go to hell, but they are recognizing that their life is fallen. It misses the mark of God's righteousness, whether it's a little boy who's lied to his mother or a man who's committed adultery. And so when they come to Christ, they are recognizing that it is sin and it needs to be forgiven and changed. And so this man has a change of mind. Three times in the Greek text it comes out, I will arise, I will go, I will say. There's a decision of the will when genuine repentance takes place. It reaches the heart. And so they have the flip side of the same coin. Look at verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Here's this prodigal who in his heart earlier had said, I wish you were dead. But this father unconditionally loves him. He's sitting, he's looking, he's waiting, he's hoping for his son. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In the East to this day, it is undignified for an older man to run. This is the only time in all of Scripture where God is in a hurry. The only time God is seeking sinners, you take one step towards Him, He'll take a hundred towards you. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fat calf, kill it and let us celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. And so they began to celebrate. The father says to his wayward son, let's kill the fattest, juiciest calf. Put a robe on his back just like we get a robe of righteousness. Put a ring on his finger, a symbol of authority, just as we are given authority as God's children. Put shoes on his feet so he can stand strong. And Jesus is answering the question of verse 1 that they grumble about. How is it that this man eats with sinners? Maybe the Pharisees thought, oh, we've escaped any judgment from him because he's talking about the tax collectors and the sinners, but not us. And if you know the rest of the parable, then you know he includes them because the other son represents the self-righteous Pharisees who saw no need to repent. They thought they were fine. They thought they were blameless. And yet, wonder of all wonders, God even loves them. The father explained he would have been willing to hold a feast even for him if he had only asked. And so you see the tenderness of the father even towards the self-righteous Pharisee. And some of them, by the way, in Acts 15 get saved. And so back here in Romans, go back to the book of Romans, the 15th chapter. Paul is saying, look, accept one another. How? Just like God accepted you, just like God found you as a sinner, He wants us to understand that God accepts us unconditionally. 
But in accepting us and receiving us as sinners unconditionally, it's not with a sense of reluctance. As Jesus affirms, it's with a sense of passion. He receives sinners passionately and then quickly. Christ Jesus receives sinners to the glory of God. He receives sinners to the glory of God. Look again at verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Paul is admonishing these saints that there should be no division in the church. Because when there's division in the church, when we don't accept each other, then God is dishonored. It's the opposite of his being shown off. To glorify God is to show off his character. You're not showing off the character of God when you reject God's people in or outside of the church. We're to receive one another. Verse 8 begins, for I say that Christ has become a servant. And that's the problem of our day. We have too many big shots in the church, too many celebrity Christians who want others to serve them. They're not like Christ, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is to the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. God kept his word. He kept all the promises concerning the coming of Messiah. And not just for the Jews and for the Gentiles, that's most of us, to glorify God for his mercy and then to substantiate God's love even for Gentiles because that's where the rift would have been in the church between Jewish brethren and Gentiles over diet, over days, over all kinds of things that God even loved Gentiles. He quotes from the three sections of the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so he quotes from each section to show that God has always loved Gentiles. As it is written from 2 Samuel, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. That's the prophets. And again, he says, this time from the law, Deuteronomy, rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people. And then from the third division, the Psalms, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come to the root of Jesse, and he who aspires to rule over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. Why is he quoting these three sections of scriptures? He is affirming from every section of the Old Testament that Jesus is not the white man's Savior. He's not the black man's Savior. He's not the yellow man's Savior. He's not the brown man's Savior. He's not the Jewish Savior. He's not the Gentile Savior. He is everyone's Savior. And everyone is welcome to him. And by his own shed blood, he bought this church. And we are to be careful not to do anything that would divide it. Verse 13, he gives the benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want me to share with you how you can receive sinners both in and outside of the church? Do you want to know how it is that your heart can be overflowing with joy and peace that you will abound with all hope? Number one, obey the command of verse 7. Receive other people just like God received you. Number two, do it in the power of the Holy Spirit because you have no power in yourself. But He gave you the Holy Spirit as your helper. And just as you relied on Christ alone for your salvation, as you've received Him, so walk in Him. Now you rely upon the Holy Spirit who lives in you to live a godly life. And number three, you just have to believe. It's all happening in the context of believing. We have to believe God. 
And some of the most miserable people I know on the face of the earth are born-again Christians who either refuse to receive other people or by habitual, unrepented sin, refuse to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're miserable people. Now, we've seen all the way through Romans that true salvation brings about the obedience of faith. You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Your life changes. And some of you are here this morning, and you need to be saved. And if you are a sinner and willing to admit it, that you need a physician that you are bankrupt and can do nothing to save yourself, He will receive you. But if you come bringing things to God, He will not receive you. If you want to be saved, you can. You can call upon Christ and He'll forgive your sin, but you must come through Christ, not through your baptism, not through your good deeds, but through Christ and Christ alone. Some of us need to obey Christ and to take that first step of obedience and to publicly confess Him. Some of us need to obey Him and to be baptized. We've let our pride keep us from New Testament baptism. And some of us just need a a New Testament church. We need to obey God and be faithful to the Scriptures and to commit ourselves to a local assembly. But some of us here this morning, there's some division in your heart. It might be with your spouse. It might be with a church member or somebody down at work. And you need to release them and forgive them and receive them as Christ has received you. Now, our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for what we've read and what we've studied. Thank You for our precious Savior. Thank You that He sought us as the Good Shepherd and died for us. And You've helped someone, I'm sure, to see that today. Because His Spirit has been sweeping and stirring their heart and and showing them their need for salvation. And Father, You're just waiting for them to come so that You might give them a robe of righteousness and declare them holy in Your sight. Thank You that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. If you want to be saved, you can be because it's not something you earn. It's a gift you receive. And if you will say today, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, but I thank you that you died instead of me. You bled for me. You took my punishment death, and you were raised from the dead, showing you were able to do it. Lord Jesus, I trust you and you alone to save me. Father, help someone today in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help those of your people who need to take a step of obedience today to take it. We pray that together we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that we would love Him more and more and more. That our unity would grow and develop, that You would be seen, that You would be glorified, that when unbelievers come into this place, they say there's something different here and that they would want it. And we ask it, our Father, to Your holy glory and to Your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Have you been found? To listen again to today's message from Romans 15 entitled, Receiving Sinners, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order it on CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM69. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And don't forget to listen to more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to it at searchthescriptures.org. When we return Monday, we'll examine a life and ministry that God can use. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>